You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Nicholas Marchuk. Nick is the Special Operations Forces Training and Testing Development Lead at the Atterbury Muscatatuck Center for Complex Operation, located in central Indiana. Nick, welcome to the show. Super happy to have you. Hey, John, thanks so much for having me. And uh, on behalf of our Adjutant General, Brigadier Lyles, he wanted me to thank you for this opportunity. And thank you again for hosting us at MWI a few years ago. That was a, a real great trip that we still look back on. It was great to work with you guys during that time. So I think this is a nice compliment to two episodes we've already done, the National Training Center and the Joint Readiness Training Center, which have the two, well, the NTC has the biggest by pure size, I guess, urban training centers, but I'm pretty excited to have this episode highlight what I say is probably the most under-recognized, but legit around the world, best urban training site I've ever visited. So let's get right into it, Nick. So for our listeners, could you give a quick introduction to what is the Atterbury Mescatica Center for Complex Operation and what is your role there? So Atterbury Muscatatuck is the uh, Indiana National Guard's premier training sites. Camp Atterbury was started and the land was purchased in 1941 and then in 1942 started training soldiers to go overseas. From there, Atterbury continued to grow and then 2003 we started mobilizing soldiers again up until about 2013. So we're still able to mob soldiers but we're not doing that actively right now. We're in a warm status so if we had to, we could. So to give you a little bit of a explanation on what Muscatatuck is and everyone's going to have a hard time with the pronunciation. I always say you kind of say like, my cat is duck and it gets you pretty it gets you pretty close um Escatatuck is a native american term i think it means like slow moving river or slow water which would be named after the Muscatatuck river right by it but in about 1919 1920 indiana didn't know how exactly to take care of the mentally ill or mentally deficit so the idea was if you had somebody in your family who was mentally ill or deficit you the state could take much better care of them so they literally bought a bunch of land in the middle of nowhere. They thought like the country scene would be more calming. So you would drop your family member off at this place in the middle of nowhere. And it was called at that time, and it's going to be a little insensitive, but it was opened as the Indiana Farm Colony for Feeble-Minded. And so they were chartered and they started taking on not just adults, but young males. But as for most of the buildings on Muscatuck right now were built probably around the 1930s. And the idea was that you would drop your family member off there and it was a warehouse. They stayed there until death. Eventually, as the site continued to grow and get more and more patients, it started to expand drastically. During that expansion, you would have people, we, they started taking uh, female patients too. They had a nursery, they built a five-story hospital, they had laundry facilities, warehouses, farm animals, everything you'd imagine like in a small town, basically what it grew into. As time progressed, the model on treating people with mental illness changed. So the idea of just warehousing them in the middle of nowhere uh, lost favor. So they started pushing people into group homes. Pharmacy, pharmacology got a lot better. So drugs made a big difference. And then the site went down to only a couple hundred patients. But you had this enormous facility that just was no longer economically feasible. The plan was to just completely bulldoze everything and give it to, I think, Purdue Agricultural Research Center. But this was right when Iraq was really kicking off and there was a need to do urban training. Um, at that time, 
our assistant adjutant general and the adjutant general, General Tooley and General Umbarger, they went down to Muscatuck and saw the value and were able to make a value proposition that this would be an amazing place for urban training. So the National Guard took it over in July of 2005 and have been running it since. So the property is owned by the Army, but licensed to the Indiana National Guard to operate. And since we took it over, we started adding a lot more density and a lot of different unique capabilities to the site. So if I can frame this, I know it's been long-winded, but the Atterbury-Muscatuck relationship is very close to like what Yakima Training Center is to JBLM or like Camp McCall and Fort Bragg. Muscatuck's about 45 minutes away from Atterbury, but it's considered a range of Atterbury. No, I, I get that. And Atterbury seems to me, you know, classic, more military base, armory kind of, we got some ranges on it and things like that. And what we're talking about is the Muscatuck Urban Training Center, which literally is an old, you know, like you said, mental home area. To me, it's like a small urban it's bigger than a village. It's not quite a city by my definition, but it's you, you drive to it and you almost get amazed. You drive through the woods, you drive through some agricultural land and bam, you hit a fence and you enter, you're almost like entering a city. And then that's what we're going to talk about, I think, for the rest of the podcast is the Muscatatuck Urban Training Center. What I think is one of the best kept, unfortunately, secrets of urban training in most militaries. You know, it's interesting you talk about being a secret because we've had, you know, special forces ODAs are, are the prime example. We'll have one ODA come out and they'll, they'll love it. And then a year later, you'll find another ODA from that same company and come out here and say, man, I'm surprised nobody from uh, our group's ever been here. It's like, no, you, you guys got an ODA that comes out here all the time. Everyone tries to keep it a secret so they can get in easier, I think. I'm pretty convinced of that. I mean, we're going to get into that. Like I'm, you know, an urban warfare guy and I profess it. But let's get into it, like because most people don't understand like you were talking about it was a it was a real place. This isn't a mock city that we built out in the desert in our one of our training centers or out in the wooded swamps of Louisiana. This is a real urban site that was handed over by the state to the army and then the least to the National Guard. I think if I got that right. Uh, Leased to the Army and then licensed to the National Guard to operate, yes. There you go. But it isn't you know, buildings that we built to train on. These, If you, from my eye-opening experience of visiting now multiple times, it is a urban site made up of real urban buildings that not only were used, some of them still are used on a day-to-day basis. They're real construction, real glass windows, real office material. The five-story hospital has real hospital stuff in it. Um, And it's like, it's almost, I wouldn't say a ghost town, but it's like a city that people just walked away from. Yeah. And that's almost literally what they did. The last day, it was basically just take your personal belongings, leave everything else there. So if you were doing any type of, let's say, close quarters combat training inside, for instance, the hospital, you would hit a room with a with a door in the middle and you'd go in and you would see an x-ray table. You would see waiting chairs. You would see everything that you'd find in a real hospital. You know, one of the problems I, I've found when you go to like, you know, your home station, uh, mount site, it's usually just a center block building, no windows, and like an odd chair randomly placed in the middle of the room. Where this is, I mean, if it comes down to like doing a sensitive site exploitation, you're going to be there a while. It's realistic. Everything is still there as, as it was when it was an institution. All right, let's get into that. So let, let's talk about specifics. How big is it? How much you know, acreage does it cover? How many buildings you got? How high are the buildings? You know, what are the destruction of the buildings? Let's get into the details of it. Yeah, so Muscatatuck sits on about 1,000 acres. 
of land, and then adjoining it is a 180-acre reservoir. So we do have a slight maritime domain, not much of one. It's very small, like 180 acres, but it's there. So when we look at our buildings, the highest one is a seven-story, looks like a building that got bombed out, but it's built to look that way, so it's completely stable. We have three buildings that are over five stories, and 110, like one-story buildings, 78 that are two to three-story. We have a total of 953 buildings. A majority of that, though, are shanties and like small huts or almost like guerrilla bases or cabins. So we're looking at about 953 total structures within that thousand acres. Uh, one of the things that, you know, when I've talked with people, they say, oh, a thousand acres, that's, that's probably just a battalion training site. People aren't accounting for the square footage going up and subterranean. So all these buildings range from just about everything you'd find in a, in a small town, fire station, hospital, school. We have doctor's houses. So when it was an institution, they didn't have enough people in the local community to work as doctors there. So a lot of them would come and stay and live on the site. So we've got a lot of ranch-style houses and some fancier houses where the state director used to live or the head surgeon. I'll tell you some of the unique things that we have there. So when the site was built, they ran all of the steam from the power plant that still operates today. It's not a power plant. They don't create power. That's mostly just steam heat and it heats the buildings and the water. All of those utilities were run underground through a tunnel system. So we have an east and west tunnel and a north and south, giving us about one mile total of tunnel. So we have that subterranean component. I would say over 50% of the buildings are connected via that tunnel system. One of the, uh, one of the other things that we're able to do with that is we're able to run all kinds of fiber to support some of our cyber efforts through those tunnels and then all of our power goes through those the tunnels are probably about eight feet high maybe in most spots and you can almost walk two abreast no rf signals are getting through there so it, it, it adds a really unique challenge to the site additionally uh, one of the other things that we've just i don't think the last time you came out we had it but it's called smear it's the social media environment internet replication system so we can kind of do io campaigns open source scraping instead of facebook it has like Bookface. instead of twitter it has something very close to twitter so it has all that social media and internet so instead of having a thousand people typing and putting stuff in we just turn this on and it populates all of that and we can tailor the messages and triggers so a unit can exploit that. The other really neat, unique thing we have is something called the Onyx system, which is a 3G, 4G wireless network that the government owns. It's closed loop. So we can use it for testing and training without upsetting like Mr. Sprint or Mr. T-Mobile. And so that can also be used for uh, all kinds of applications in a training environment. Uh, we have a low power radio station that we run and that can be used as part of some IO campaigns. And you know, to give the listeners kind of an idea of when we're talking about like the size of these buildings, the hospital is 48,000 square feet. There's 11 like points of entry just on that one building on the ground. There's a tunnel access, there's roof access, there's two elevator shafts, four different stairwells. So, you know, people say a thousand acres, that's a battalion size objective. Well, when you start looking at that hospital, that's easily two companies or battalion minus. I can't agree with you more. From my interviews with other major training center with an urban scenario, one of the first things you learn is that you can't just count the maneuvering force. You have to account for those that secure key train, those that isolate the objective. Where you have a building like that, like you said, that's going to take 
you're just on force ratio, a single building a company objective, you're going to get to a brigade size operation very quickly with the number of buildings you're talking about. And that's just if they're in there, what you, I know from your, from being there, you're just talking about your city core, let alone the entire shanty town that you guys built that, that butts up against it, which is realistic. And I think unique to, yeah, if I think about it, I haven't been in any other turbine training site with that has that unique, but realistic feature of that pop-up kind of Somalia tin roof shanty town that pop up quickly adjacent to the higher income areas. Right. Or like a Turkey Syria border where you have a lot of uh, people, displaced citizens or refugees, and then they're just setting up. The other neat thing that kind of unique to us is we are probably about straight line, one mile, maybe two miles straight line from the Jefferson Proving Ground, which is an air to ground range. So we've been able to tie in a lot of training events where they've been able to do incorporate live casts at Jefferson Proving Ground with maybe their J, JFO or JTAC there. And then once those planes go cold, they'll flex over and do dry urban casts. And we can do that because of the, the way the airspace is laid out around Muscatatuck because of Jefferson Proving Ground. And then the last thing I would I would I would say make, that makes us really unique is the ability to do true multi-domain operations with the cyberspace domain, the capabilities we have, and I'd love to talk to you about those in a bit, our subterranean land. So when we look at the land, we've got the sub-T, the actual real buildings and cyberspace, and then we're able to do those information ops as well. It's really hard in a podcast, and I highly recommend anybody that's really surprised about what's out in Indiana to go visit it, because even me, I've gotten the the capabilities briefs, I've seen the slides. You don't get a feel until you actually get on the ground and walk every aspect. And I'm telling you, I've I've been all around the world and to a lot of mock urban sites. Muscatatuck is not a mock urban training center. It is real urban training that was turned into a training center. So, I mean, even the sub-T, bar none. I'll say it now, the best sub-T environment for training that I've ever seen and ever been in outside of, you know, like a cave network and, you know, name the place that you're just not going to seclude for army training. You're sub, you're over a mile of tunnels and it's not just what we tried to build, like connect two buildings. It's expansive down there. And it has real, like you said, real steam pipes, real wire, you know, real stuff running through it. It's crazy. And, you know, it, it gets interesting because there are times where if you divert from the main tunnel and go into an offshoot, let's say to the hospital, you've got to weave a couple pipes that's a lot more narrow and short. And a lot of people don't always think about like when you're going through there with full kit or your nods, uh, you're going to be bumping into stuff and it, it's going to get real frustrating very fast. We actually did a test with the Army uh, Rapid Equipping Force and they had guys go through a scenario, mostly it, through the tunnel system with just their standard issue kit. And then they realized all the different problems that were coming up. So then the ref equipped them with a, a sub-T kit, if you will, and then had them redo that same mission set. And the difference was nine day. It's almost mind blowing. I think we interviewed the you know, the NTC folks, and they said you know, one of the major urban sites does have an, a sub T aspect to it, but most of the time it's not a major part of the fight. And one of the reasons is it would halt the fight, just like in real world. But Muscatatuck teaches you that you quickly don't own the underground at this point, you know, unless you have a map of what's down there. It, it blew my mind. Like I think you you were discussing how you were up for it for one scenario, and you understood the underground, so you were able to quickly come up underneath the people as they thought they were secure within their objective. Yeah, that's true. I forgot I told you about that story. Yeah, we had a, a unit and they had secured a bunch of terrain and we were the op four and they wanted us to attack. But so 
just like uh, in any other city, if you're going against a force that's indigenous to that area, they know the area. So we knew, why don't we just take the tunnels over there? Well, that makes sense. They'll never see that coming. And we were able to pop up literally underneath them and uh, surprise them. They were not expecting that. I mean, some other unique aspects, again, I have become a connoisseur of kind of urban training availability. The unique aspects of, like when you say that's the prison, and there's a couple of urban training sites that say like, hey, that's the prison, it's heavy clad. No, no, Muscatuck has a prison that not only has jail cells on one floor, it has an underground secret jail cell. Is that right? So what we were able to do was we, you know, because we have people, it's the National Guard, we've got contacts everywhere. You know, a guy may work as a police officer in a community or his brother is the mayor of a town. We were actually able to assist one of the local counties in updating their jail. And how we did that was we had engineers go and help remove all of the old jail cell doors, which saved them the teardown cost. And then they just got new doors. So we took all the old jail cell doors and we installed them in a building. We've got a, we actually got a mock courthouse house that was purchased off of ebay and so we've got we've got this mock courtroom in there and we've got all the jail cell doors and the first floor is like your standard jail cell doors and then the basement it it gets real creepy down there too and they've got like the isolation cells a lot bigger than what you'd find at sears school but just as probably boring and lonely in there. And then there is tunnel access. So when you go in, it's an actual, it's outfitted like a real jail with real jail cell doors. And the other thing to make it more like a real jail is we do have, so I talked about we have the government owned cell phone system. We have our own closed loop intranet. And so we have a lot of devices on that closed loop intranet to include pan, uh, commercial pan tilt zoom camera systems in the jail. We have ICS SCADA devices, so internet control devices. We have the lights are all hooked up to the uh, internet system, microphones. There's magnetic door locks that's all controlled through that intranet. So that building is wired just like a real jail. And what we've been able to do is take some of our either our cyber protection brigades that the states have and have them defend against a cell trying to free the people in the jail for ransomware or we've had units actually go through and bring their non-kinetic breachers their cyber guys and say hey can you breach the doors just using your computer and we've started to see that become a lot more popular and people having more and more success with that yeah the comparison is almost night and day to any capability that to be honest and i'm not just blowing smoke but real city cctv cameras throughout the place and like you said complete multi-domain every aspect i mean i love the and i was actually surprised i mean well you know if you look at urban triad of the what defines urban you have the physical structures you have the infrastructure and you have the population you not only can replicate that but you can replicate almost every pattern of life. I, I remember seeing, you know, vehicles everywhere. You built the rubbleized aspects of it. Uh, let's transition a little bit, Nick. Last time I was there, you showed me a training schedule. What type of training happens today at Muscatatuck? You know, what kind of training is going on? So, you know, John, we host training from every service branch, both active, guard or reserve. I mean, they all come through Muscatatuck. And, you know, we've actually been doing a lot of partner nation forces that have been coming there on a regular basis as well. We just talked about that real infrastructure of those buildings. And because of that, we do get a lot of government agencies, a lot of the uh, like the different defense labs will come out there and test new technology because, you know, you've got a building with actual electrical running through it, a real live electromagnetic environment. 
You've got, you know, some of those buildings are kind of like the old Eastern European buildings. They've got chicken wire and then it's all brick or mortared. And then you've got your all the real items that you'd find in a building inside. So it provides a realistic environment to do a test that, you know, maybe downtown Indianapolis would not appreciate you testing. So we're able to do that. So a lot of testing. A lot of, uh, we also do a lot of like non-federal entities like law enforcement groups. They come there quite a bit. What I would say though is we, we are actually really good at layering a lot of the different events going on. So, you know, when I first started at Miskatech about 12 and a half years ago, there was an idea of if I come there to train, I want the whole site or I don't want anybody around me. And that's really changed. I think as as the, as the U.S. has been engaged in long-term combat, they've realized that, you know, you are going to have adjacent forces. You are going to have other people around who may not be part of your event. So that's becoming really, uh, it's kind of a selling point. At first, people didn't seem to care for it very much. But as units have come back and we've kind of perfected how we layer these different events, it, it provides a more realistic environment. You'll see if somebody's doing pattern of life, you don't really know who's part of your scenario or who's not. So I would say though, to answer your question, most of the training I'm seeing now, of course, close quarters combat and a lot more Intel training, a lot more of the INTS, like the SIG INTS and the human training. And the other thing that's very popular is units coming, especially from the Special Operations Command, to do a full mission profile, to do the complete find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, and disseminate, and then repeat. So uh, I don't know if I asked you before, but you know what the type of training you're talking about to me actually requires some real people. How do you guys replicate the population of this urban training center? So that's a, that's an interesting question. We've always kind of gone up and down with our living population on the ground. So first of all, the operations guys, a lot of times if there's a big event going on, will not wear their uniforms. They'll just wear civilian garb. Additionally, one of the things we've done is we've actually partnered with a local college, an Indiana-based college, and they started a cyber program at Muscatatuck. And what we were able to do is tap into those students. They, they get to live there. And a lot of them, we've kind of catered this cyber program for our guard soldiers. That way, when they're done, they can come out with a degree in a lucrative field. But while they're there living on Muscatatuck, they're providing that human population. And again, by marrying, uh, layering different events, the site, you know, depending, can look very populated. And you don't know what's going on or who's part of what event. But we do a very good job of orchestrating that chaos so you have more of that human population. Would it be better if we had more people? Absolutely. Uh, the cyber program's, you know, not huge, but it is adding a, a level of density that, you know, doesn't require Department of Defense to pay full-time role players. Yeah, but but that does happen, right? I've seen kind of uh, emergency preparedness exercises or I think some of your PSYOPs officer, where, you, where there have been role players from within the community that are kind of hired and brought on to, to replicate that population. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we are kind of the platform. So Northcom does a big, it's like a, as if a nuclear detonation went off and we would be the closest you could get without getting completely radiated. And they'll bring in hundreds of role players for that. A lot of the special operation units will hire a contract company to get professional role players or insurgent forces and to add to that. So yeah, we can do it. Northcom, that exercise, the vibrant response, guardian response. I know we're looking several thousand people just running around Muscatatuck. And you know, you should come out next time and see it because all that rubble you see gets put in all the roadways. There's cars on fire. So they got to send in route clearing teams with engineers to clear everything. It's pretty impressive. I've been out and I love every time I get out there and it, it is really music to my ears. I just wish it was done more 
So let's get into your brain a little bit, though, about what you've observed. You know, I always ask this question, especially with you people that are significant players in the training or just have got to watch training over and over again in this dense urban, I wouldn't say replicated site. Now yours is a real site, but has there been anything that you've seen throughout your years of observing training at Muscatatuck that are might be trends or like, man, units always struggle with this? You know, being a prior NCO, I love training. I love watching it. I love uh, meeting with units, taking them down to Muscatatuck and saying, what are your objectives? Here's how I would set it up or here's what I've seen done. And the one thing that I've noticed that's really started to change. So when I first started down at Muscatatuck and even up until maybe several years ago, you would get a unit that says, okay, we're going to hit this building. That is where our HVT is. It was just kind of decided. Whereas now I'm starting to see a lot more of, a lot less white carding and more of a fusion of the enablers. So whether it's a SADE or a SIGINT team or a human team or an ISR platform, they're actually incorporating that now more into their events and letting the two and the commander come up with where is the target actually. So that's become more of a realistic event as opposed to we just decided it's going to be in building seven. That's what we're going to do. It's, you know, which building is it? Interesting story. One of the things that I saw happen once was they were using some technology and doing all their Intel system. Everything was leading them to one building. What the unit did not realize was that building was connected via a tunnel system to another building. So then they hit and cleared probably a 25,000 square foot building only to realize that it was a dry hole and that everybody was in the building next door. And now they just had to completely change their plan on the fly and go in. That was just kind of like, oh, it's here. But now that we're seeing guys actually doing Intel, like IPB or analysis, and then incorporating that, that's really changed the way guys are training and picking their targets, which is really good. And the other thing I've seen a lot more, guys are starting, it's starting to get more common where we're seeing the inclusion of cyber fires and cyber effects on the battlefield. Nice. I love the sub T aspect of it. and. I think Muscata teaches you some amazing lessons on, yeah, you might've been to an urban training center throughout your military career where you might assume there might be a little bit, but why you don't assume that the urban infrastructure extends deep underground, despite the fact that it does in every major urban site, you know, in most parts of the world, maybe in the Middle East, not so much, but you, everything from your water treatment plant to your, like you said, your power, the, the infrastructure, I mean, how do we start training on a site like yours and not understand that, hey, there's an expansive underground network here and how are we going to deal with that? Yeah, it's it's almost one of those problems that I think a lot of people want to ignore because it's hard. All right. So it's good to hear that you see improvements in training, but there are limitations to Miskatatuck. I pointed out, I have, I know of one limitation, but there might be some that I just don't know about. What would you say would be some of the limitations to Muscatatuck Urban Training Center? I think one of our, our limitations is that we don't have like a full-time ops group. We have an operations group, but they really primarily run the site, not like the ops group at JRTC that will take your um, training objectives, come up with the scenarios, develop it, and let you show up and train. Yeah, and give you feedback, right? The units that come there are, on, are on, kind of on their own to self-AAR, things like that, right? Correct, yeah. We don't have a cadre. We don't have that ops group to plan. So when you, you look at it, I would say one of the limitations that kind of hurts us is for units, 
with their training readiness level, you know, glide paths that they have to meet, time's a commodity. And so you're taking a three and you're basically saying, I need you to plan the movement to Muscatatuck. I need to form a white cell, a red cell, and then also plan for actions on objective. It's a, it's a lot to throw in one guy's lap or, you know, one shop's lap. So I think that is one of the limitations that kind of hurts us. Maybe there's a few limitations on size, but like we just said, that's usually an understanding, a misunderstanding of all the maneuver forces it'll take to even approach, depending on if it's offense or defense, an operation intense urban train. Yeah, you got to look at it almost in a three-dimensional picture as opposed to just, well, I only see 1,000 square acres. That's that's not enough. You know, you got to look at it 3D. Yeah. I mean, there's some... um, you know, battle effects or, you know, armored vehicles that you, you're not going to be driving down Muscatatuck, right? No, you could do um, a striker, an SBCT. We could do that. But yeah, you're not going to come rolling down there with M1A1s. Yeah. And I've argued sometimes that reduces collateral damage rather than increases it. You know, speaking of, I was going to say what you're just talking about, the collateral damage. You know, what is pretty neat that we can do, though, is before a unit does a, a strike, they can actually, using that smear system, we can actually, they can go and look at like the pre-strike and post-strike messaging and the IO campaign, whether it's positive or negative, to see what effects they have. And with that low-power radio station, we've had guys come in and like a commander do an interview post-strike. And the guy who works at our radio station, he's pretty slick. And he'll, he he kind of does that gotcha journalism sometimes. And then so you've got the commander maybe stumbling because they weren't prepared or briefed right or said just the wrong thing. And then from there, we can change the messaging on the social media platforms to make it more negative and now you've just upset everybody in the city so we can add those different levels and layers to make it more interesting and difficult or pull it back if if they're starting to struggle you can push yourself and all your subordinates as hard as you want or are comfortable with which is which is kind of unique so i think what you were talking about though did remind me about and, and i'd like to ask you because i know you have these uh, amazing unique capabilities, but how have you seen units kind of marry the live kind of people on the site and then the virtual and the constructive at other locations? So we do have a J10 node, um, the joint, was it J10 2.0? And so that allows them to do reach back to other locations and push the information, whether it be digitally or like in a live virtual constructed gaming environment. We've actually done some pretty neat stuff with AFRL, where they had some people in a Pred simulator, and they were looking at images of Muscatatuck in like a gaming convention. But with that, we had guys wearing, uh, it was called the Eddy system, and it had like a GPS. So you could see where people were moving live throughout Muscatatuck, but you were looking at a digital version of it. And so for the Predator pilot and then the A-10 pilot that was flying around as well, I remember the A-10 pilot kept asking, I don't see the Pred, where is it? I mean, we had really streamlined it so good, and then you had a ground force operating on Muscatatuck. So we've been able to do that. The other thing we were actually able to do is with our cyber capabilities, you had mentioned like our water treatment plant. So we no longer treat the water there, but it it has all of the equipment that it did when it was functioning. So we encourage units like a cyber unit to actually practice, okay, you're going to load out, bring your equipment, show up, set up, 
and then do your cyber operations. You know, as you know, anytime you deploy, you got to make sure you got all your stuff with you. We've had guys show up and they're like, well, I don't know why my, my computer system's not working right. It was working right at home station. That's because you unplugged everything, you picked up and you moved. So that adds a, a level of realism that you don't get sitting at home station. But if you want to stay home station and do reps and sets, we can actually connect people through a node at Miskatatuck. They can manipulate the ICS SCADA devices at the water treatment plant and see through a, a camera there the effects, like if blue dye starts to pour, they know they are adding fluoride to the water. So we're able to do that without having people come there. They could actually go on, connect, manipulate our stoplights or do stuff at the at the jail or we have, a, it used to be the head surgeon's house and it has about 90 internet of thing devices on our intranet, our closed loop. They can enter the closed loop and then you know, turn on a camera somewhere inside the house or turn off the alarm. So yeah, there are ways we can connect virtually and still conduct good training. So Nick, if you could change any aspect of Muscatatech to make it even better for Army Urban Operations training, you know what would it be? I would really like to see the addition. So you've walked through our urban canyon. You know how dense that is and all the rubble. It's like a street in a failed city. I would like to see more of that added. Mid-rise buildings clustered together really close like you would in another city somewhere else in the world. What I've One of the mistakes I've, I've seen a lot of people do, so when they go into the urban canyon, they'll do a strike on one building. They don't push out and take over other, what I would say, like key terrain in an urban environment, other buildings nearby. They just, they think, well, I've got this building. They're ignoring everything else around them, which I don't think that's going to be realistic. If we went into some mega city that you're just going to be able to focus in on one building or one high rise building and not worry about any of the other ones surrounding you. So I think if we were able to have that and you had a smart op four, U.S. soldiers would get more exposed to that and start thinking and tackling the problem. You know, if I'm making contact from a building next door, do I keep clearing this one? Do I break contact? Do I call in another force to assist? I think that would really start to develop some of those TTPs and get people out of the mindset of just doing close quarters combat in one building only, and that's all I focus on. And I agree. I think that was one of my, you know, if I had a lot of money to add to make it even better, I would just start connecting all your your site. I'm a big fan of density, you know, alleys that you barely walk down and streets you can't drive down, which you already have. I know that. But exactly, just adding density. You don't need to add underground and you have plenty of that, but adding vertical and density. Yeah, I can't agree more. Well, Nick, I really appreciate it. And I, I hope this lets people know about Miskatatuck if they don't already. And what I say is probably the world's preeminent urban warfare training site, especially for realism and everything. Uh, thanks a lot, John. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you as always. You know, I hope some of your listeners uh, hope to see him come out to the site one day and get some really good training out of it. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right. You take care, buddy. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.